0: Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with the Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's episode. You can find more of Anthology at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. You can tweet me at Obsessive or you can send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Or finally, you can call and leave, a vo- leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, the easiest way to do that is to head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. I love getting feedback of any kind, and that is the most the best way to do that. Uh, the more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes' search results, and it shows your support in a very easy and uh, uh, straightforward way. If you are in the giving mood um, and want to support Anthology with your wallet, there's actually a donate button on AnthologyPod.com, as well as a link to the in the show notes of this episode, which can be found at AnthologyPod.com slash 031. Every donation made using that donate button goes directly toward the fees to keep the podcast running and is incredibly appreciated. Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing A World of His Own. It's the 36th and final episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on July 1st, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll share my thoughts on the 1980 film Somewhere in Time, written by Richard Matheson. And, of course, before I get into my review, I'm going to go ahead and read the plot description courtesy of the Twilight Zone Companion uh, by Mark Zekri. And just so you know, going forward, the plot summary and review are going to be completely spoiler-heavy for this episode. So if you haven't watched it yet and don't want to be spoiled, go ahead and um, leave the podcast and uh, check it out on Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, anywhere Uh, DVD, whatever, Um, or the new Blu-ray if you just bought that, and come back and listen to the review. So the plot summary according to the Twilight Zone Companion is as follows. Victoria West is surprised when she looks in the window of her husband's study and sees him sharing a drink with Mary, an attractive blonde, but she's even more surprised when she barges in a moment later and finds the woman gone without a trace. Gregory explains that simply by describing something, or somebody, into his dictation machine, he can cause the thing to materialize in his office. To make it disappear, all he needs to do is throw the tape in the fireplace. He demonstrates both these actions, first with Mary, and then, when Victoria attempts to run off, with a full-grown elephant in the hallway. Despite the evidence of her of her own senses, Victoria informs Gregory she is convinced he is insane and intends to have him committed. In reply, Gregory removes an envelope from a wall safe. He tells her it contains the length of tape on which she is described. Believing none of this, Victoria snatches the envelope away from him and throws it on the fire. She has just enough time to register astonishment before she disappears. Gregory rushes to the tape machine and frantically begins to re-describe Victoria, then reconsiders and describes instead Mrs. Mary West. The loving and far less temperamental Mary appears, contently mixing her husband a drink. Starring as Gregory West in this episode of The Twilight Zone is Keenan Wynn, this was actually his only episode of The Twilight Zone. However, he did work with Rod Serling on uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight, which I reviewed in episode 22, the original Playhouse 90 uh, episode, that is. Um, he's the son of Ed Wynn, who played Lou Bookman in One for the Angels, and who was also in Requiem for a Heavyweight. And uh, as the story goes, Keenan Wynn is actually uh responsible for convincing his father, Ed, to become an actor. Um, I believe he was just in vaudeville uh, prior to that, and Keenan uh, convinced him to be in film and television. So Keenan Wynn also appeared in The Rack, which is a 1955 United States Steel Hour episode written by Serling. And the plot description is, A decorated Korean war hero inexplicably collaborates with the enemy while interred in a POW camp and is court-martialed. This was actually uh, made into a film, uh, I believe, a couple years later. But it sounds really interesting, and it might be something that I may um, hunt down and review uh, in a bonus review in future episodes of the uh, podcast here. And a couple more things about Kenan Wynn is that uh, he also appeared in Dr. Strangelove, and he was originally set to play Perry White in 1978 Superman, but he had a dropout upon arriving in London for filming because he had some heart problems. And he also had uh, hearing loss um, throughout his life, Um, and was kind of a big um, advocate for for his fans and for younger people to take care of their hearing um part of the reason for his loss of hearing was actually due to the fact that he raced um one of his hobbies was to race things um whether it's land based or water based or um what have you he he loved to race and most of the vehicles were loud and unmuffled and that's that's what uh caused him to have significant hearing loss later in his life co-starring as Victoria West in this episode is Phyllis Kirk. This was her only episode of The Twilight Zone as well. And she also appeared in one episode of Tales of Tomorrow back in 1952 titled Age of Peril. And she actually retired from acting in the 1970s. So she doesn't have much in her filmography or biography on IMDb or anywhere on the internet that I could find. And rounding out the cast as Mary is Mary LaRoche. Uh, this is her first of two Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, we'll next see her in Season 5's Living Doll... And of course this episode was written by Richard Matheson who is quoted in the Twilight Zone Companion as saying actually the first outline I submitted was a serious one in which it became very nightmarish for him when his characters came to life i guess it was a little melodramatic for them so they suggested that I try to lighten it up and i redid it as a com- as a comedy which i think worked out well and spoiler for my review, but I agree. <laughs> um, it, it's uh, I'll get to that in a moment. But anyway, uh, director for this episode is Ralph Nelson, and this is his only episode of The Twilight Zone that he directed. However, he did direct the Playhouse 90 episode um, of Requiem for a Heavyweight, as well as the 1957 remake for the BBC that had Michael Caine and Sean Connery. I believe that was called Blood Money. Um, and then he also directed the 1962 movie version of Requiem for Heavyweight, uh, starring Anthony Quinn, Jackie Gleason, and Mickey Rooney, which I mentioned this last week on the podcast, but, um, I intended to have this episode, uh, bonus, this bonus review for this episode be the 1962 Re- Requiem for Heavyweight film because because Ralph Nelson directed it, and this is his only episode, The Twilight Zone, that he directed. However, um, months months of planning to do that, and it was con- kind of contingent on, I guess somewhat contingent on um, Requiem for Heavyweight being available on Amazon Prime. And so, the other night when I was getting ready to watch it for this podcast to take notes and everything, I noticed it was no longer on Amazon Prime. <laughs> so... Uh, so I would have granted, I mean, I could have just rented it from Google play for $3, but instead I figured, okay, well, I've already reviewed a version of Requiem for, he- for a Heavyweight this season on anthology. I'll circle back and I'll record or I'll review the re, uh, the 1962 film version of it later down, later on down the line. But for now, this is the first episode I think that we've had in a while that wasn't written by Rod Serling and I figured I I would go ahead and review something of Richard Matheson's instead. So that's how I came to review to, to, to picking somewhere in time, which is funny because it was $3 on Google play also. <laughs> so anyway, um, so with my, so with the talent rundown out of the way, um, what I knew about this episode before going into it was that I knew that it was a ri- about a writer whose stories become real. Um, I didn't know if that meant that his characters came to life or that he writes something and it happens in real life. Um, all I knew that it was something about a writer with some extraordinary gifts. Um, and it kind of reminded me of an episode of um, Are You Afraid of the Dark, the kind of super cheesy 90s uh, Nickelodeon series. Um, there was an episode, I don't remember the name of it, I just rewatched it recently, but there was an episode where this kid has uh, finds an old typewriter and when he writes the things going on, or when he writes using it, the situations that he writes about come to life and become, become real. It's kind of a fortune telling device. Um, so I don't know if it was I don't know if that was inspired by this or, or what have you, but anyway, that's just what my mind went to when I, um, with what little information I had about this episode before going in. So, for the last time in Season 1, here are my thoughts as a first-time viewer of this episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, immediately, right off the bat, I have to say I'm so glad that this is presumably the last time that I'll be seeing that eye-opening. Um The opening theme with the just stationary eyeball that really weakly transitions into a moon that s- sets or descends... Um, Before the twilight zone logo comes up or it's not even really a logo. It's just lettering in a really just plain font. I don't, I'm, I'm seriously really happy that that's, that that opening sequence is not sticking around. It's really awkward and kind of useless and it's, it's bland and it honestly it just feels out of place and not in keeping with the tone of the show at all. And that's saying something because this show runs the gamut of tone. <laughs> um We'll have an episode that's silly, uh, an episode that's funny, an episode that's serious, an episode that's really steeped in social commentary. It runs the gamut and none of those versions of this, of this uh show seems befitting that I, opening sequence. So I am happy to say good riddance to it because it just, it was, it was just, I don't know, not for me. It, and I am railing against it. And it's probably completely ridiculous that I'm devoting this much attention to that opening sequence, but I just, I just really didn't like it. Um, so I'm eager to see what season two is going to have in store in terms of opening sequences and opening theme music. So the episode starts out with our introduction to Gregory Gregory West. He's a playwright. He lives in a very nice suburban home. Uh, we're told that he's shy, quiet, and at the moment he's happy, is the way that Serling describes him. And I felt like this introduction is a very economic way to describe how somewhat idyllic his life is. Um, he's got this beautiful house in a very... Um, idyllic like neighborhood. Like it looks like it could have been Maple street. <laughs> um, it's just, it seems very nice and comfortable. He has a very nice study, um, that the episode almost entirely takes place in. And I mean, it's, it's really that along with the costuming of, of just his costume. He's wearing, he has a nice wardrobe and everything about just seems like comfortable. Like he's, he's a comfortable person, in a, in a life, in a comfortable life. And then we're introduced to Mary, who is, she's, she adores Gregory and is fixing him a drink. And it's almost like she's a servant to him. And he, like he says something to her and then she says, uh, we'll let the master decide. (laughs) And And like, even when, even when he, uh, she gives him her drink, a a drink, um, he says it's perfect. And then she says, are you sure you're not referring to yourself? And it's just, it's really interesting (laughs) to see that because we come to learn that he, um, has invented her from the dictation machine and he, she is a character that he has created and When she asks if he's describing himself when he says that the drink is perfect, it's interesting because Mary in that sequence, in that moment, she's somewhat of an extension of his hubris to an extent. And I thought that was a really interesting dynamic because he's he's creating this servant to dote upon him and it's just it's really interesting to me uh, but at this moment we're we're just introduced to her as a mistress so we know that he's cheating on his wife we don't know the extent of what of what uh that that is we don't know exactly where what the deal is and i got to say uh, Serling's opening narration is kind of fun and cheeky. Um, he isn't making some grandiose statement about the character or the situation. He's having some fun with it. And as the episode progresses, we're going to see how much fun the, uh, Rod Serling character has with this, with the situation. And so when the mistress leaves, when Mary disappears or we cut to, um, Victoria pounding on the door, we get a quick scene of, Gregory with, with a pair of scissors and as he goes to the door. And at that moment, it's not clear. And I, I like the mystery around it. It's, it's this nice, like lighthearted mystery that's like, what is he going to do with the scissors or, or what has he done with the scissors? How do they factor into the story? And you would almost think that it could be that he is going to kill his wife <laughs> with the scissors. But the way that Keenan Wynn carries himself and the way that the tone of the episode goes, it's clear that that's not what's going to happen. But um, it's nice to see that they disregarded a cheap thrill or a cheap bit of tension um, to keep the tone of the episode intact when they could have had a more tense interaction there. And the fact that Victoria comes in and interrupts his time with Mary, that kind of made me think that if we're seeing Mary and if we're seeing Mary as kind of an extension of Gregory's hubris or, or if we kind of boil it down to a physical representation of his creativity, it kind of made me wonder if Victoria interrupting that is, is the point of the episode. Like is this episode going to be about Victoria being the embodiment of writer's block or yeah, I guess writer's block. I'll go with that. Um, Because, because maybe the physical representation of Mary, maybe that's not supposed to be him finding happiness with a woman. It's him finding happiness in his craft and his creativity and Victoria coming home and interrupting that is blocking his creativity in a way that is that manifests itself physically on screen for us. And I think that that read on it is, it may be a little broad and it doesn't really track that well with the rest of the episode, but I like thinking about it that way because it's, it gives a little bit of depth to the story and to the character of Gregory West. And even though it's not, Really, it doesn't really seem to be meant to be a deep, thought-provoking, uh, uh, story this time in this episode. It's still a little bit of meat there that, that you can really, um, dig into. And after, after having such disappointment on that level with the Mighty Casey last week, I really relished having this opportunity to really dig into what some of these situations could mean in this episode. There was a lot more to it than, than what I got in the mighty Casey. So I appreciated this episode on that level quite a bit. And after that, we get uh, Victoria searching for Mary throughout, throughout the study while Gregory is just kind of standing there, you know, just uh, completely guiltless. Um, And I love that she checks the wall for a secret door and it comes across as kind of paranoid and silly. And she even like calls out, like she, she asks him point blank if he has a secret door. And all that is just seems silly. Like, why would he have a secret door when he can just make them disappear as we'll learn? But what I think is funny about that is that the silliness and the paranoia of it comes into play, um, or gets extinguished a little bit later when he reveals that there's a hidden safe. So he actually does have a hidden compartment. It's not to, it's not to keep his, uh, his mistresses um, hidden. It's just, it's, he has a secret, a secret layer there. It's the fact that he's married to this woman and this woman has no idea what he is um, essentially. And that's kind of one of the things about this episode that i think tracks a little bit is that it's it's not it's about these two people kind of discovering each other or really his wife discover, discovering him yeah. um and there's some there's some things about the uh characters and about gregory and victoria that i that i'll get into a little bit uh going forward and uh, a little bit later but i just kind of like that Gregory isn't completely innocent in this at all by any stretch. And I kind of think that that's an interesting dynamic to play with. And so, um, Victoria sits and she reveals that she saw Mary and this goes back. This, what comes next goes back to what I was saying about the creativity of Gregory and how, um, Victoria can impact that creativity or be, um, it can impact that creativity, I should say. So, she goes on to explain, <laughs> she's describing, um, Mary to Gregory. And she says that she's drab. And she has all of these just like, she's not, she's not saying what Gregory wants or thinks. Um, she's just saying that she is, that this mistress is very drab looking and very ordinary looking. And, I, first of all, in that moment, I really liked, um, Phyllis Kirk's performance in that scene because she is really giving it her all in this, in that scene. She is, I mean, she is like, she's not quite melodramatic, but she is, she's performing it. Like she has a very, uh, strong energy, um, to it. She's kind of projecting a lot into that scene. and And I kind of like the kind of, haughty drama, I guess. Uh, I would, I would say, I don't know if haughty drama is really the right word or if that, or if that even describes anything really. Um, but she kind of has this air of superiority of this kind of, um, upper class attitude, kind of, kind of a snooty attitude, kind of similar to, um, the, the storm, not storm manager, but, um, Mr. Brewster in the After Hours, kind of this kind of snooty attitude. And she's so like, she's not threatened by Mary so much as she is perturbed by her a little bit. And I like that she describes Mary as being drab. And (laughs) that's kind of Gregory's, um, uh, his his reaction kind of reveals his truth that he's like, oh, she's not so drab. and it's beca- it's not so much because he is in love with Mary it's because Mary is his creation that he and he I would assume this is what I got out of it um mary uh like her description of Mary offended him as a as a storyteller and as a writer um that's how I read it, and I got some good comedy out of that. I appreciated that quite a bit, and that it doesn't end there because because Victoria asks what her name is and Gregory says Mary. And, and Victoria kind of scoffs at him and is like, Mary, how common. It's, And then she goes on to describe her boring appearance in detail. And in that moment, she's literally criticizing Gregory's writing. And that kind of really goes back to um, her being an obstacle to his creativity. And I thought that was really clever. Um, she's kind of like an anti-muse in that sense. And that's to an extent in this, this is getting into an interesting uh, thought process here because she doesn't um, dote upon him or she doesn't, she doesn't sugarcoat things to him. That's why I'd, I would root for her over Mary. She's, she's kind of like, obviously she's kind of perturbed and, and domineering a little bit and angry to, a little bit, but I think that I would root for her over Mary because Mary is this servantile creation that is meant only to satisfy Gregory and that's that's not a compelling character and that's not it's a it's a love triangle between the 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 playwright and his uh his hubris and um honesty essentially. And it's it's really an interesting dynamic. And Victoria challenges Gregory in a lot of ways in this, in this episode, even though it's revealed later that she is herself a creation. She's had time to, um, develop her own senses and develop her own style. I guess this isn't completely a creation of Gregory. She's adapted to the world that she lives in. Um, in some ways she's kind of similar to Casey from the mighty Casey last week in that he, she has learned how to be human. um, and I just want to just take a break from my review here to just give a quick shout out to the short film that I saw in Indianapolis here at the Heartland Film Festival this year, last uh, a couple months ago. Uh, it's called The Goodbye, and it is really – like if you liked this episode and this dynamic, it's a really interesting short film. And I won't talk too much about it because it's not even available online yet, but go to, go to the short – or I'm sorry, go to The Goodbye – film.com and at least check out the trailer cuz it plays with a lot of the same concepts that this episode plays with and the finished product of it is really interesting and I hope that it's available online sometime cuz I would love to see it again like it's 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 an emotional it's an emotional like powerhouse short film that I loved um that is that this episode reminded me of it quite a bit so we're back to Victoria and Gregory talking about their marital problems and Mary and this there's kind of a, a back and forth. That's, that's so fun to watch. I love seeing them bicker and argue. Um, Victoria says that, sh- that Gregory has made love to made love to these creations because at this time he is, he's explained to her what's, what's happened and she's not believing it. And she just kind of says, you've made love to them too. Remember, and there's a great moment where Keenan Wynn responds to her and says, yes, I mean, no. And it's just, it's such a fun bit of comedy in this, in this episode. It's, it's overall, this episode is really fun. That's, that's what I keep coming back to is this is a fun episode. And then we're shown how he creates these characters and everything. And I love that his style of writing is exactly like Sterling's. He dictates his work into a dictation machine. And that's exactly how Serling writes wrote in, at the time. And when he's saying all of this, I, I like the reaction of Victoria because Victoria is still lighthearted. It's, it's still a lighthearted tone. And it's it's almost like she's patronizing Gregory a little bit. She's not threatened by him. She's not, she's not angry at him per se. I mean, she's, she's angry at him, but she's not letting that overtake anything. She is just in a position where she knows that he is crazy and that he wants to, um, that she wants to have him committed. But her, her response to his explanation is interesting because, is, is great because, uh, Gregory's explanation is completely preposterous. But Victoria responds in a way that isn't shocking or impatient. She knows that Gregory is slightly eccentric and she's lived with him for a long time. Um, She's bothered by him and bothered by being cheated on, but she's not overly dramatic about it. It's not a melodramatic um, relationship drama. This is a comedic story and it's a comedic turn and she gives into the comedy really well. And I really love the dynamic that's on display in this episode. This chemistry between the two actors is really great. And they seem to be having a lot of fun with their characters in these scenes. And it's great. And it's great when when the show has something like that. When this this episode is two characters um, at times three characters in a room together. And it's them it's their drama playing out. It's their comedy playing out. And it's, it's this fun energy that's contained in this very small space. And I really love when shows can pull that off. And when the twilight zone can pull that off, it's, it's really spectacular. And as far as Keenan Wynn's performance, like again, I have nothing but good things to say about it. But when he is discussing his, uh, talent. And he's, when he's talking about this gift, it, he does it with kind of a glean to his voice and into his, a little glint in his eye that shows that he's like, it's like the character is very prideful of his work and he's passionate and he's in love with his work, which makes the really crazy or, <laughs> which makes the really, um, not a, well, I guess offensive by today's standards depiction of Mary as this, doting servant for Gregory. It makes it really, uh, really interesting because it's more that he's in love with, with his work and she's the embodiment of his work in creativity. So he summons Mary to the study with the dictation machine and the way that it's handled is really easy to be, um, to not take seriously or to not, um, it's really easy for Victoria to not believe it still after he summons Mary because he has Mary show up at the front door and walk in and come into the study. I mean, it's understandable that Victoria would be, would still be skeptical after that. And at that point she kind of needs to remain skeptical because you have that drama of, of her interacting with Mary in the study. And I really like the implication that Gregory is gaslighting Victoria and trying to make her seem like think she's crazy, I think that's a really interesting dynamic to throw into the uh, throw into the fold. Even though this is kind of a farce and it's more of a fun relationship comedy than anything of of more dramatic substance, I still like that there's that implication that Gregory is intentionally making uh, making Victoria think that she's gone crazy, and I, I like that element to the story even though we, at that point we know that that's not the case. I I still like that the episode takes that Avenue. Um, and I like that. I like that in that moment, at least Gregory chooses his wife over Mary and it's kind of, it's kind of messed up that he summoned Mary just to prove a point. And it kind of shows how he treats his characters and to an extent love interests in this episode, because he's, he treats them as things, as objects. And it's kind of, it's a little disturbing and, and, um, not good. (laughs) But again, this whole episode is more silly and comedic anyway. So it's, it's not something that really needs to be under the microscope that, that much, which I realize is probably a complete contradiction from my review last week of the mighty Casey. But this episode has a lot more there to, to really dig into the mighty Casey didn't have that for me. So I can make it, I, I can be a little more forgiving for some shortcomings in this episode than I can, than I could be with the mighty Casey. Cause this episode still, um, still gave me a lot to, to think about. But when he takes Mary away or sends Mary away, um, I love that moment where Mary just says, says not to bring her back because she can't bear it anymore. And it's really, it's really sad and poignant. And it made me really curious about what was going to happen next, which is funny because what happens next is there's a freaking elephant. uh There's a freaking elephant in the twilight zone. <laughs> and I thought that was really cool. And it was a little twisted because it comes at a time like, like Gregory just summons it because Victoria is leaving and he's doing it like he created the elephant in the hallway um, to compel her to stay. Like it was almost like in a more dark episode, Victoria would be his prisoner at that moment. Um, and it, it just kind of reinforced or enforces the uh, kind of relationship drama that's at the, sen- the center of this episode. Um, if you really kind of unpack it a little more, there's there's a little bit there to unpack. And it's, it's kind of interesting because he's, he wants to keep the relationship alive. He seems to be wanting to, wanting to keep the relationship alive in his own way. Um, he says that he's saving their relationship and, uh, Victoria is not really having it or isn't as accepting of that as he would like her to be, or isn't as understanding. Um, and then we get the reveal of the secret wall safe and, holy crap, I have to admit, I did not see that coming. Uh, the fact that he created his wife with the dicta, with the dictation machine, that was such a cool twist to me. I, I was so floored by that. It was so, so cool. And I like, I just, for some reason, I just did not see it coming. And that's one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast because I'm surprised by this stuff because I've never seen it before. Um, and just, just, seeing that envelope with her name is such a cool, a cool moment in his justification or not justification, but his, um, explanation that she was a creation of him, of his mind because, uh, she is perfect and, and she ended up with him. It's, there's a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit there, a little bit of drama there. um, and a little bit revealing about the Gregory character. All of this is still for comedic effect and it's all silly, but the fact that he created this woman and created these women, um, because he can't get them in real life by his, by his estimation, there's a little bit there about his, about his persona and his personality and his, um, his character that is a little, um, depressing really. Um, but it, the episode doesn't really gear toward that, but it's, it's something there that's, that's kind of uh poignant a little bit. And it's really, what happens next is interesting because he says that he was upset that she came back against his will. And when you really look at Gregory West as a character, he's, I mean, he's kind of a messed up character. Um, his his wife Victoria is no longer under his control. She is autonomous. She is, she's not doing as she's told. And this is a kind of a twisted depiction of a relationship. This is where I was talking about, about the relationship drama in the episode is that she's, she's not a wife to him. None of these characters are, are wives or romantic interests to him so much as they are creations of him. Um, And and that's a really twisted relationship, uh, to depict in this episode and there's no like there's no moment where he there's no moment like in a passage for Trumpet where he's on the roof and after going through an ordeal and he meets uh a a beautiful woman who is going to give him a chance. There's none of that. He he's still creating these characters and he his happiness is contingent on his creations, which speaks to the creative element of the episode and the creative um the creative mind at the center of it, but it's also kind of twisted that he has such a uh, one-sided view of women, and he creates women as things for him rather than um, as as complete figures. Um, that shows how good of a writer he is, I guess, or as as uh, probably reveals some of his faults in his writing. But just the implication that she's not under his control anymore is is a little crazy um, or a little dark in this episode. And then she grabs the envelope and still doesn't believe him, which at that point I'm kind of curious, like how can she not believe him at that point? But that's fine. Um, and so her not believing him ends up getting her quote unquote killed um, because she throws the envelope in the fireplace and then she disappears. And it takes another comedic turn where Gregory goes to, goes to create her um, again or bring her back and then and then he stops, thinks about it again and just says, why not leave well enough alone? And then he brings Mary back instead. I thought that was kind of funny, even though I was kind of rooting for him and Victoria to kind of reconcile their differences and, and him to realize that she was a better fit for him because she wasn't the doting mistress that, that he desired. But the somewhat loving. She could become the loving wife that he deserved or needed. Um, because that's what a relationship is. It's not two people, one person just doting upon the other person. It's, it's, you know, two individual people. And then we get probably my favorite moment of, of the episode and it kind of closes it out here. But, um, this was such a surprising, again, I'm so glad I didn't know anything about this episode because this was such a surprise seeing Serling come on screen for the first time. Um, and I thought was this to end the season. I thought that, okay, well he was just going to do the closing narration there. But the fact that he is in injected into the story and that he starts to do his closing narration, but then Gregory <laughs> stops and grabs an envelope showing that he uh, had created Rod Serling and throws it in the fireplace because uh, Rod Serling was saying that that the story was ridiculous and 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 crazy and fiction. Um, it is such a great moment. This, I mean, it's it ranks up there with my with my favorite moments of season one because it kind of blew my mind. I thought I love when it kind of breaks this fourth wall a little bit and it's kind of this it's this fun, silly thing that's in the confines of the story works so well. And it, I'm so glad that they did that. I'm so happy that they went this route because it is such a joy to watch. And, uh, and I love, uh, Serling's, Serling's, uh, last line on screen where he says, well, that's the way it goes. And it's just, it's so awesome. I loved it. Um, and then we follow that up with Serling's closing narration that is so perfect. I love that he says, uh, Gregory West shy." Um, I'll actually read it from the Twilight Zone companion cause I don't want to mess it up. He says, leaving Mr. Gregory West, still shy, quiet, very happy, and apparently in complete control of the Twilight Zone. That is such a great ending, such a great closing narration because it subverts our expectations of what the Twilight Zone is in a very unique and fun way because up until this point, we've had Serling talk about the Twilight Zone as this ephemeral state or this ephemeral place that that is uh, that is in complete control. It, it's this it's this supernatural state that controls things and and is is influencing these characters' situations and and putting them. Into trials and and putting them into situations that are really crazy and out there and everything, and then we have this—we have this really fun scenario that is um, so lighthearted, and it ends the season in such a cool way because it has the creator on the screen in the story. And we have him being destroyed by the writer of this episode – or not writer of this episode, but a writer within the episode claiming to have created Serling. I just – I love that dynamic. And the closing narration where he says that it's – that that Gregory West is apparently in complete control of the Twilight Zone is is the perfect topper to it. I, I really loved that episode, uh, that ending, and I really loved this episode quite a bit. Um such a fun episode and such a fun way to end season in season one. Um, I really liked it. So as far as trivia for this episode, um, let's see. So although Sterling did appear on screen at the end of most of the first season, uh, twilight zone episodes to plug the next week's show, which is something that I actually didn't realize until I bought the DVD set because on Netflix and, and online, they don't have those little, um, teasers for the next week's episodes. for the next episode. Um, but on the DVD, they have those, those little segments where he's on screen, uh, usually in part of the set for the next episode, just saying something about the episode to kind of whet the appetite for, uh, for the viewers. So, and I love that they included that. And they also include a little bit of the, uh, ads for like the, the sponsors and stuff, because I, I don't know. I, I really like that on the DVD set because it's a nice piece of history, I guess. But anyway, so this was the first episode where Rod Serling appears on screen within the episode itself and directly interacts with with a character. I don't know if this is something that is uh, going to happen again, him interacting with other characters. But it's interesting. It's interesting that this is the first time or possibly only time. Um, But apparently from season two onwards, Serling would appear will appear on screen at the start of each episode. Um, So I'm looking forward to that yeah, there's not really much else about, uh, in terms of trivia. Um, at the end of the first season, Kimberly Clark discontinued their alternate sponsorship of the series, which if you're watching it on DVD, um, you'll, you'll hear the voiceover announcement at the end of each episode in season one saying, uh, and now a word from our alternate sponsor or Kimberly Clark brings you, uh, invites you to watch Steve McQueen and Wanted Dead or Alive or or the Danny Thomas show or what have you. Um, so after this season, um, I guess they, they get a new alternate sponsor with uh, General Foods. So that'll be interesting to see in the season two DVDs. And as I mentioned before, Gregory West's method of writing by using a recorder, which would later be transcribed by a secretary, was how Rod Serling um, wrote all of his scripts. And it's worth noting the main difference is that Rod Serling preferred to do it while dictating preferred to dictate into the recorder while lounging beside his pool, which is kind of interesting because I always kind of just pictured him in like an office or like a garage for some reason. Um, It's just weird that he has these, it's weird to imagine Rod Serling sitting by a pool creating his, you know, some of the greatest television of all time, um, just while lounging around the pool. Um, uh, that's kind of funny to me. So in closing, the final episode of season one of the twilight zone was so much fun. Keenan Wynn and, uh, Phyllis Kirk were fantastic. They had really great chemistry and this was an overall really fun episode. And I'm really glad that they had this episode to end season one, cause it subverts what we expect from the, from the twilight zone. It made me eager for season two because it's something slightly different from what I've seen before. So it makes me curious about what other new things are going to be included in season two. And overall it was just a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it was a super fun episode and I can't wait to watch more <laughs> and dive into season two. And also I forgot to mention this in the trivia, but that was a real elephant in the episode, which is pretty outstanding. Um, and such a surprise. This, this episode has so many surprises that I was, I was really, I was really into it, uh, for this episode. So it's a, it's a strong episode to end season one and I can't wait for season two. So, um, Having done my final season one review of the Twilight Zone, um, before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's a highlight from episode one hundred and eighty-two of the Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host over at ObsessiveViewer.com. Uh they eventually like there's, you know, a growing respect as the movie unfolds. Like that is the one the one character interaction between two between multiple characters. That's the one piece of characterization the one relationship in the movie where i was like on board with it and thought that's pretty good that's that's pretty solid wow every other every other characterization every other character interaction was just fell flat to me and of course you can find the obsessive viewer on itunes stitcher google play and at obsessiveviewer.com and you can find the episode that you just heard a clip from at obsessiveviewer.com slash ov182 Okay, so this week's bonus review is for the 1980 film Somewhere in Time. Um, this uh, this movie was written by Richard Matheson, um, adapted from his novel titled Bid Time Return. And I found it on Google Play uh, to rent for three dollars, so it's you know it's worth checking out um, as you'll hear in my review. So this movie stars Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. And it starts out with, in, it starts in 1972 at this college after, uh, the main character Richard, played by, um, Christopher Reeve, um, after one of his plays has successfully been performed. And it's, it's really, it's a really successful play. Everyone's, everyone's congratulating him. It's really, it's a good hook for, for the opening scene. And, there's a little bit of a cryptic nature to it because this very frail old woman walks up to him. The crowd goes completely silent, even though it's not really clear why they would go silent. Cause all she's doing is just walking toward him. There's not anything to really make them go quiet, but in complete quiet and in complete um, dead silence, she hands him a pocket watch and she just says to him, come back to me. And then, and then she leaves and that's a really interesting hook for the opening of this movie because I mean, obviously, I mean, if you're going into a movie called somewhere in time and you know about the movie, you know that there's time travel at the heart of it, but it's just a really interesting hook for, for the opening scene of the movie because I don't know, it's just, it gives you a lot to contemplate going forward. And so then there's a time jump to eight years later in Chicago. Richard Collier is the playwright. He's successful, but he's, he's distant. He's, he's kind of, it's implied that there's something missing in his life. And so he goes, he has like a kind of a, he takes a break from playwriting and and everything to, to go on kind of a vacation to, to um, reinvigorate himself and, and get kind of back into the groove. And it's there that he that he stumbles into a a hotel uh near his college uh that he went to and that's that's when he finds the photograph there's there's a there's a framed painting or photograph of um I'm stumbling um there's a there's a there's a framed picture of a beautiful woman from 1912 tw- uh, that just draws his eye and there's this connection that he has. And so a lot of the first, the first act and the first couple acts of this movie is that he is obsessed with this photograph and he is researching it and, and looking into who, who this woman was. And it's, it's this drive and this connection that he ha- he has with the woman that's really captivating to me, um, because just by looking at this photograph, he feels a deep connection for this woman who her name's Elise and she was a she was a uh, an act a theater actress um, who stayed at the hotel, and I love that he feels so deeply for her without fully understanding why, and it's one of my favorite things about time travel is that. Is that moment when, when they, when storytellers use the Twilight, er, not the Twilight Zone, but use time travel to make it into an almost supernatural or spiritual entity. So he has this connection to her because spoiler alert, he goes back in time and, and falls in love with her. So it's, it's a really interesting hook. And those first couple acts are really intriguing. And the method of time travel is really interesting as well. He uses a tape recorder to kind of hypnotize himself into traveling back and back in time. And it's, it's a really interesting technique for time travel. There's no machine, there's no, um, there's no like deep, like hard science fiction explanation for it. He's just, he gets dressed up in, in the 1912 attire and and wishes himself back to, back in time and it's it's really it's really a a clean way to do it um without having to without trying to be too grounded in reality and i have to say this movie looks gorgeous like really really beautiful the set design and the costuming it's just a really beautiful film um the way it's the way it's captured on camera and it's it's a really especially when he goes back to 1912 it's really beautiful to see it. Um so when he does travel back in time the movie takes an interesting turn like he'd been pining over information about this woman and formed this attachment to her and it made me really wonder what their meeting was going to be like and it made me wonder how do you how do you have two characters have a meet cute when one of the characters already loves the other really deeply? And it's, they play with it really in a really interesting way. And um, I won't give away any of the interactions they have, or I won't give away how it's handled, but I really appreciated what they did with it. And um, there are some, there's some really interesting elements to it. It's really kind of, not necessarily suspenseful, but there there's a tension to it that I thought was really, uh, sweet really. (laughs) Um, and I love Jane Seymour in this. She like, like it is really easy to just fall in love with her in this, in this movie. Um, she's very kind of, she's very quiet and a little reserved. Um, and she's gorgeous. It's, it's really, it's really fantastic. And their chemistry, um, is great. I I really loved Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour's chemistry in this. And I will say that this is unfortunate and this is more an issue for me personally. Like, like this is, this is, this isn't a fault on the movie by any stretch, obviously, but I kind of found myself a little distracted just thinking about the tragedy of Christopher Reeve's life. Like he, um, about, I think it was 15 years after this movie was released. He was, uh, uh, fell off the. He was in a horseback riding accident that paralyzed him, and um, it's just I, I kind of found myself distracted by that. Um, but that's that's more baggage I bring to the movie than anything the movie could have possibly conveyed to uh, to the audience. Obviously, because it was 15 years after the movie was made, but it was still something that I kind of kept coming back to, and it kind of made me uh, distracted, wanting to research more about Christopher Reeves life um after his accident in uh, the 90s which is really fascinating and really um beautiful uh like if you go to Christopher Reeves IMDB page and check out his trivia section it's there's some really there's some really touching stuff in it that's that's really beautiful and and sad and and i mean like he like after his accident him and his wife, like their work for, uh, paralysis research and, and their work after that is just astounding. Like they, they, yeah, it was just, it was phenomenal. Check out the trivia section you'll learn more Wikipedia or whatever. Um, so there are some interesting elements to this movie in the, in the last half where I kind of wish that they would have played with the time travel a little bit cleaner or a little bit more. Um, like there are some elements that could have been more cyclical or not more cyclical, but would have upped the tension. Like there's a moment where, um, Christopher Reeve is checking into his room for the first time and he is checking into the room previous to that in 1980, he had seen, he, he found an old logbook that showed that he had checked in at a specific time on a specific date for a specific room. And the the man helping him at the counter gives him the key for a different room number, and I really wish that they would have done more with that because it ends up being just this really um, throwaway scene where he's like, "No, I are you sure that there's not you know room four sixteen available?" I really wish that it would have played more with the time travel aspect of it, like him going back in time affected things in a way that maybe it did, maybe it didn't have to be you know, maybe he didn't end up in that same room and that, that shows that he can change the past in significant ways. But then that's asking for it to be a completely different movie. This movie at its heart is a love story between Christopher Reeve's character and Jane Seymour. And it's, it's more that's at the center of it. They don't need the flashy time travel gimmicks. They don't need the flashy time travel gimmicks or, or any kind of cheap drama or tension um, at it, or they don't need to manufacture tension because the drama of these two characters um, is enough to kind of sustain the movie. And there's, there's her manager character, uh, her manager played by uh, Christopher Plummer, actually. He is kind of a wedge between their romance and, and that, that scenario, that situation, that plot is compelling enough to make it, um, to, to make it more, interesting. Um, I, I should say so. So I don't fault the movie for that. It's just, I'm a fan of time travel in movies. So I wish that they would have done more time travel-y stuff, but that's more, again, that's more baggage I bring to the movie than anything else. So I'll kind of wrap up this review shortly because I don't want to get into spoilers again, but, um, there's some interesting film techniques. Um, the movie takes on this dreamlike quality when Richard and Elise have kind of their, their first date, I guess there's this kind of foggy, um, lens effect that's, that's, or this haze that's put into the, put into the film that makes it, it's kind of dreamlike and i and i liked that um and i believe it was john Barry who did the music for it and the music is is kind of uh sweet and and it really um helps helps us get in to the mood to watch this romance blossom um and then there's a really moving moment where she's on stage and and richard is watching her perform and it's it's a really moving scene i won't give away any information about it but it's it's really sweet and really moving and Um, I won't, I'll cut off my review there cause, cause then I'll get into spoilers here. Um, kind of toward the end, there's some dramatic elements that didn't really, didn't really, uh, hook me as well as I would have liked them to, but the story at the center of it, this love story between, um, uh, between Christopher Reeve's character and Jane Seymour's character was, was enough to sustain my interest and, and make me, uh, feel for the characters and root for them. So I, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit, um, Yeah, and that's, that's somewhere in time from 1980. Um, so yeah, and that'll do it for this week's episode of Anthology. Um, I just want to say, holy crap, I finished the first season. (laughs) I mean, I'm super excited about that. Like, this is the last episode of season one. Um, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm super, I'm super excited about that because I, I put a lot of effort into this and I had that long hiatus and I'm really, happy that I was able to get out of that hiatus and, and be somewhat consistent with my episodes going forward. And I mean, this, it takes a lot. This is a lot of work, especially for a one man podcast. Like that's, it's not an easy thing to do. And I know at this point, I'm just patting myself on the back, but I am, I'm really pleased that I was able to do that. And I'm incredibly thankful to everyone that listens. Like when I go into my, um, like I host the podcast on Lipson. So when I go into Lipson, which is a website to host media files and stuff, um, when I go into and I see the stats, like if I check the stats for the entire lifetime of the podcast, like it's like little tiny notches throughout the first eight, nine months of the podcast's life, because there's that seven month hiatus. And then as soon as after the hiatus, it just explodes. And I'm really thankful that I have consistent listeners and, and you guys keep coming back. It's I, it's really gratifying to me that you guys, um, find me interesting enough or this content enough, interesting enough to come back to it week after week. So I really appreciate that. And I, and I know I say it at every episode, like, Oh, if you want to donate or if you want to support the podcast and all that, like, I just, I appreciate you guys coming back every week. So I I just, I don't know. I just really appreciate it. So thank you guys for listening. And, uh, as for going forward, since this is the end of season one, I'm going to be taking just a brief break. I promise it's not going to be seven months. <laughs> um, um, I'll be taking a break from reviewing the Twilight Zone. It'll just be for a couple weeks before I start season two. But in the interim, I'm actually going to have an episode reviewing season one as a whole, just kind of giving giving some uh, overall thoughts on the season as a whole and that episode's going to be featuring Brandon from Submitted for Your Approval. Can't wait to have him on. He's a great guy and his podcast is fantastic and he, he's been getting some really incredible guests. Um he just recently had Graham Elwood on for an episode who directed um first of all he's a stand-up comedian. He also has a podcast called Comedy Film Nerds and he just recently directed a a movie called Earbuds that I just talked about in a recent episode of The Obsessive Viewer in episode 194. Um basically Earbuds is a documentary about podcasting and about podcasts and it's it's really great. You can buy it on uh um comedyfilmlearns.com. It's it's really it's really uh worth checking out. And also I'm going to have hopefully a special episode uh after the season 1 um review episode and that special episode is going to be reviewing The Time Element. Which is, uh, Serling's sort of first Twilight Zone story. Um, and that episode is going to be with my friend and obsessive viewer co-host Tiny. Um, and the time element, it's, it's kind of it's kind of a bummer because I have it on DVD because it's part of my DVD collection. Um and I thought that it was available in its entirety on YouTube, but I looked today and it didn't have the first segment of it. Like it's broken up into parts. So it's like th- six different um videos, but the first one's missing. So I don't know, like google around, you might be able to find the time element uh, to watch in its entirety, but I'll have a review of it with my friend uh Tiny um, here in a few weeks and of course you can look for my reviews of the twilight zone season two beginning sometime in mid to late january 2017 but in the meantime again thank you guys so much for listening i really appreciate it and um yeah thanks for listening and i'll see you next time oh also by the way <laughs> uh check out my bonus reviews of black mirror that are still going strong and should be Finishing up pretty soon. So, again, yeah, thank you guys for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by com You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317 762 6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out the Obsessive Viewer. A weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer com, where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer, and check out obsessivebooknerd.com, dot com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.